Welcome to the International Collective of Female Cinematographers podcast, where every week we'll be talking to a different cinematographer and listening to their stories as they navigate the filmmaking world, sharing secrets and experiences to empower our community. The ICFC is a collective of professional female cinematographers from around the world who provide each other with community support and industry advocacy. We are your hosts, Amelia and Akina. Today, we're so excited to welcome Jendra Jarnigan. We will be discussing her 20-year-long overnight success, being based in New York City, how an innovative headshot led to creating an iconic personal brand, managing personal finances as a filmmaker, and landing and shooting her first TV show as a cinematographer. All right. Thank you so much for joining us, Jendra. This is great. Um, thanks. Thanks for having me. Okay, let's start right off the bat. How did you become a filmmaker and how did you become a DP? Well, I was uh, invited to an extracurricular uh, gifted and talented program through my middle school. And there were a couple of options of boxes to check. And one of them was video production. And I didn't know anything about video production, but the other things on the forum were not areas where my talents lied in terms of like music or painting or that kind of thing. So I was like, that sounds cool. So I went to this um, public access uh, cable station in my hometown in uh, Cranston, Rhode Island. Actually, I think that the, the facility was in Johnston, our neighboring town. We, sh- we shared a public access, it, uh, Cox Cable. And instantly I was like, wow, th- this is people's jobs like there are people who work here who do this and it wasn't like I wanted to be a um, you know television patrol room engineer instantaneously it's just like it clicked about storytelling like I I loved I loved books and I loved photography I always liked movies but those were the two things growing up that I really gravitated towards and in terms of uh, artistic expression so I when I saw this video access public access station, I was like, wow, people make movies like that's somebody's job. So I was instantly interested and excited and and impassioned in that direction. And I stuck with the program for a few years and learned probably about two years in that there was a cinematographer's role that was not the director that made these kinds of choices and had these kinds of responsibilities because up until that point, I didn't have any exposure to it. And I only knew, you know, back in 1986, we're talking, you know, the, there was no DVD making of featurettes. It was, you know, every once in a while on PBS, you'd see Steven Spielberg, you know, some, you know, director and actors behind the scenes kind of thing, but no mention of any of the other artisans. So Mm -hmm. once I found out that the cinematographer, what the cinematographer's role was, I was pretty surprised that like, oh, I don't actually want to be a director. I want to be a cinematographer. That's where my interests and talents lie. So I went to uh, NYU undergrad. And when I entered uh, as a freshman, I was pretty clear that I wanted to be a cinematographer, but also um, open enough to know that I didn't really know until I did both. I was just basing this on what I've been told about Mm -hmm. who did what. So let me actually be in the trenches and and perform, you know, both roles. And within the first few classes of of my first year of, of, you know, this is being a director, this is being a cinematographer. I was like, yep, I was right. Uh, Cinematography it is. And uh, so pretty much 
you know, I've always, it's what I've always wanted to do since I was a kid. And I was, I was always very clear on that. And I was always very driven and ambitious. It, when I applied to NYU early decision, I didn't have a safety school. My plan was if, thank God I got in, but if I didn't get in, I was going to go with my backup plan. You know, I didn't have any other schools that interested me. So I was going to go to a state school for a semester and, and get good grades and then reapply as a transfer student, like that was, that was my plan B. So yeah, that's, that's how I got my start. You uh, recently um, just finished your first season on East New York, correct? Yes. Congratulations, first of all. Thank you. Thank you very much. Can you talk a little bit about the, this is your first television show, right? Yes. My first full TV series as a DP. So I had done TV as an electrician back when I had a side job, worked on Sex and the City, Law and Order, Sopranos, uh, and I had done double up days or on the East Coast, we call them tandems, you know, shooting additional unit photography or second unit or VFX unit or additional camera operating. So I, I'd been around TV, but get but landing your first show is a really big catch 22. Like you don't get to shoot TV till you've shot TV. And most people's first TV series, you know, as a DP comes from being promoted from being the A camera operator. And I, I knew that, but I already had a, an established DP career in indie films. So I didn't want to go take a job as a camera operator on a TV series just for the hopes of it leading to getting promoted. Like, oh, OK, hopefully this show will come back for another season and hopefully the DP won't return and hopefully they'll promote me. It, it was just too um, much of a chance of, of, without a guarantee that I was like, OK, I'm going to keep, you know, shooting shooting films and keep trying to break into TV. And it it was really, really hard. Why was it important for you to break into TV? I mean, you have a pretty good indie feature career. Like what what was what made TV appealing to you? When I got started, there were a lot more mid-level films. Uh, my husband, who's also a cinematographer, we, we joke and call them the middle class films. And like now there's not. Now there's two million and under. And then it jumps up to you know, 150, 200 million blockbusters. And the 10 million, 15 million, 20 million dollar films are so few and far between that they are ridiculously competitive and being shot by, you know, people with Oscars. So it, it's kind of like, you know, once you've shot a few films in the in the million dollar range, like you don't, you're not getting hired to shoot bigger ones. It's It's like the next... I mean, unless you've had some huge breakout success through Sundance, which I, you know, just kept waiting for the indies that I shot to, you know, break through. But most of them, no one has heard of them. So when you apply for a bigger movie, a studio movie, and people look at your resume and there's 15 movies on there that they've never heard of, um, it's sort of just like next. And you don't, you, they don't even get to the point of looking at your reel. Like it's, it's so competitive. You're, you, if they don't recognize your credits, it's kind of a dead end. So, you know, I'd figured that television, it, you know, has, is the next step up career wise. Um, once you've shot a few indie films, that's where the eyeballs are. That's where the budgets are. You know, I, I was getting frustrated with the lack of resources and the, you know, being called to shoot a movie and 15 that was shooting in 15 days or, um, you know, I wanted to work, uh, I wanted to grow and, and work on, uh, projects and bigger budgets. And I wanted to work on things that people were going to see and, and that people would have heard of. So there's so much content and series out there right now. Even if someone hasn't seen any given show like East New York, they 
uh, it's likely that they've heard of it. So it's like, okay, you don't even have to have seen my work. And now I'm in a whole new category of employability just from having shot a primetime network TV show, whether people, whether who's ever, you know, looking in, into considering me for their movie is, has seen it or not. And they're like, mm-hmm. oh, wow. Okay. She's done, you know, she's done higher level professional productions. And now, you know, it just opens a lot of doors for bigger projects. So that's that, that was primarily my interest in, in TV. It was, you know, it's, it's almost like features are dead. It's really, really sad <laughs> to say that. <laughs> that's so hopeful to hear. <laughs> all of us are in the same path. We're trying to catch that same path. Um, I was wondering if we could backtrack a little bit and talk about what happened after school. Um, exactly. You know, what did you start out? You started out, I know you, you tried ACing for a little bit, right? Didn't work out for you, but like, <laughs> I, I mean, I didn't really try ACing. I like did, I was exposed to ACing through college and it was pretty clear that that was not the path for me. The, the, the gadgets and the, you know, like this bracket connects to this cable <laughs> and this battery plate, like I'm very technical when it comes to uh, image science and like incredibly nerdy and done some of that like ASC motion imaging technology council kind of stuff. But I'm not a a gearhead in terms of, um, you know, the assembling a camera, like putting a camera together. I just look at all those pieces and I'm just like, oh, that's somebody else's job. But lighting really appealed to me from a artistic creative standpoint that every Every time you do it, it's different, you know, and, you know, as an electrician, any gaffer, any DP, any director that I worked for, any set, any studio, any location that I exposed myself to was different every single time. So that was just expanding the the knowledge, the the tool set, the techniques, the craft in a way that I knew would would have me grow as a, as a cinematographer. So so going the lighting route as opposed to the camera assisting route was, was what appealed to me. So I, I was a gaffer for my colleagues in film school. And so when I got out of school, it was at a time when everything was shot on film and, and it was even really early in the video dailies world. So there was no digital video to shoot on, but people were shooting, were, were editing on splicers and steambacks. So it was only my senior year that Avids came to our school and there was two of them. So you didn't, most people didn't transfer their film to video uh, until it was finished. And then that cost another few thousand dollars. So unless they had a really uh, strong finished piece that they were proud of to, to, to show as a as a calling card, you know, most films were really just exercises for school that were never transferred to video. So you didn't have a copy of what you shot. So you didn't get to have a reel for quite a long time. So mm-hmm. when I got out of school, it was, okay, what can I do to make money? And it was, it was gassing. I'm newly tiny things. And I did that for a little while. And the only things that I was really qualified to, to gaff were so small that I wasn't learning anything. Like nobody, the DPs didn't know any more than I did. You know, I wasn't mm-hmm. working with bigger tools. So I said, okay, I'm not growing. I, I'm not learning anything new. So I reached out to the gaffers that had graduated prior to me that were, you know, more advanced, like in the indie film world. And I said, you know, I know you know me as a gaffer, but I, I want to take a step back and, and work as an electrician and be the the smaller fish in the bigger pond so that I can get exposed to, you know, bigger, bigger sets, bigger lights, uh, bigger setups. And um, so, so I did that for a little while on non-union films as an electrician. 
And then I started gaffing non-union films. Once I had um, accumulated all that knowledge, I went back to the, you know, leadership side of it. And then I got into the union as an electrician. Ooh. And that that was a big breakthrough because now I could make a living. Up until then, I was struggling. I was making so little money as a gaffer, an electrician, like $100 a day, you know. And the idea was to support myself as a gaffer, an electrician, while I continued to shoot freebies until I got my reel built up to be competitive enough to start competing for paid work. But the reality was I wasn't making enough money to actually take any time off to shoot any freebies. So even if I didn't work for a whole month, I could I couldn't I didn't know that at the beginning of that month. So I couldn't book myself out for something for free. I need to stay open to, you know, measly paid work. So that really took a while, I guess, to to get established enough to make enough money to go get the opportunity to start shooting again. So once I got into the union and I was making enough money to support myself, then I got to shoot more. And then I started doing bigger shorts and uh, bigger student films that had budgets and, you know, got to start, you know, expanding my my work and getting, you know, getting the stronger reel until I got to a point where I was getting paid to shoot. And then I finally got to a point where I was shooting more than I was than I was taking electric work a- anymore. And I was like, OK, it's time to phase out of the side of the side job. I don't need this anymore. What I really need is the free time to work on my career, because mm-hmm. if I'm going to just keep taking be taking electric work any day that I'm not shooting something, then there's no time to actually develop my career. And and I was I was shooting a lot of shorts and and I was frankly, I was getting every job that I interviewed for. And I was like, well, okay, well, when that's happening, you're not aiming by enough. So, so how do I get a feature? How do I um, get music videos? How do I get commercials? And I was like, I need to meet those people. So I need to start networking. I need to date my website. I need to do some outreach. And I, I had no time to do that. So it's time to stop saying yes to the easy money of the side job and actually focus on moving my DP career forward. So that that was the, that was uh, uh, January 2005 was my last electrician job it was uh, the family stone. And I, I knew it when I took it. I knew that it was like, OK, if I do it was it, it mostly shot. Um, I think in LA, but they did a, a location unit in, I think it was Connecticut or may, maybe maybe upstate New York, so somewhere in the rural, you know, outskirts of New York City. And I was like, for like a week or two. And I was like, okay, if I take this, I got called for it. And I was like, if I take this, I can get just enough days to finish this cycle of health insurance qualification. And then it resets. And then there's no point in me doing this anymore. So. I, I was like that. That was my last electrician job, and it, I remember it was funny. During that shoot, I was prepping a short film that I, as a DP that I was shooting in Spain, and the the producer was in Texas, and he came to New York to have an in person meeting with me. And I like asked the best boy like if if he knew what time we would be done or, or something like that, mm-hmm. and he got really mad at me for asking. It was like, do you want to be here or not? Like when when you're here, you're committed to be here. We'll be done when we're done. Like you should know that by now. And I was like, yeah, I know I should know that by now. But I have, <laughs> you know, someone, you know, coming to see me. And and uh, and it was basically it was they were starting to bump up against each other and cause mm-hmm. conflicts. And I was like, OK, time time to focus on my GP career. Can you actually talk a little bit more about that transition? Because I think a lot of people who come up through the crewing route, either through electric or AC, actually making that decision to be like, oh, I'm not going to be in AC anymore. I'm not going to take these electrician jobs anymore. 
uh, can be really, really scary, not just financially, because that is a big support net for you at that point, but also just like emotionally. Um, I mean, I, I went fully freelance, like fully, fully freelance, like last uh, August and like just letting go of that tether was emotionally super scary. Can you talk about that transition? Yeah. Um, I mean, that's kind of why I went into as much detail as I did so far is because I do think that that's a, a relevant um, stage of people's career that, you know, being able to offer any kind of advice like that can hopefully be helpful. Um, I had, I would say I had one foot out the door of, of, of my side job and in, into being a DP for about three years where I had, it was that that transition period of the, of the, the scales were tipping where I was doing more and more DP work and less and less electric work. Um, I was established enough as an electrician at that point that I had a few regular clients. Like I was a sort of like a permalance state player on a few TV shows. So I was like, okay, I don't have to keep looking for work for my side job. Like that's uh, self-perpetuating at, the, at this point. So I can focus on my DP career, career and then it's like, oh, okay, I've got a window of time or I need some money, you know, call up my regulars and be like, hey, I'm, av- I'm back available again, kind of thing. So that was basically having people that I was working with that were pretty understanding that knew like, oh, okay, I'm, I'm with you for a while. And then it's like, oh, I'm shooting a short. I'm going to be gone for two or three weeks. And that they were supportive and understanding of that. And instead of like, oh, you're not around anymore, never mind, or moving on to somebody else. Like that, 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 that having that established regularity had a certain level of security to it. Uh, and then I, that was always my end goal was, was to become a full-time DP. So sort of keeping your eye on the prize is important. You know, someone, a colleague at the time, you know, said to me, like, be careful, the money is a drug. And just knowing that you're going to get to a point where you're going to stop, where you're going to have to say no to re to redefine yourself, to be taken seriously as a DP you're going to have to start turning this other stuff down and you're going to go through a period that's, you don't know how long that period's going to be where it's going to be slim earnings that you need to really have a, a big financial cushion to um, be ready for the ups and downs that's that's going to come of that. So I was working towards that. I paid off all my student loans, you know, important piece of advice that I was given and that I live by and that I regularly give to other people is live beneath your means. If you want to be a professional freelance artist, then it's important to have a, a big savings account. And even if you don't make a lot of money, even if you you still need to save a lot of it. So that means, you know, wh- whatever that means for you, whether that's being frugal with how you, you know, your, your entertainment and eating out, whether that's driving a 15 year old car, whether that's living in a neighborhood, that is, you know, not so desirable. That's a lot cheaper to basically keep your living expenses down Mm -hmm. so that you can save money to have uh, the security of of the time when you might not be working. And then also for when you're ready. I mean, the goal is you want to be able to say yes to the jobs that are going to advance your career, not the jobs. And those are very often being a cinematographer, you know, at the early stages of your career. Those are very often not the money jobs, you know, mm-hmm. if, if you want to just go shoot reality TV and, you know, ma- make a, a bunch of money for an extended period of time, like that's a, something you might need to say yes to if you're if you're not going to make your rent. But if you've saved a lot of money and you get offered, you know, an indie film that is going to 
you know, advance your credits or your experience or your, you know, artistic expansion, but you're being paid shit, like you gonna want to say yes to that feature. I mean, those are hard to get. Yeah. It's 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 hard to get a job that pays you crap there because you want to advance you. So when those come up, you want to be able to say yes to them. So so that that's you know I, I basically I, I can't stress that enough. And I'm saying this as someone who you know grew up poor and didn't have the financial support of my parents, not because they weren't supportive, but because they didn't have the the means, and who you know, started, started from nothing. And it took, took a really long time, frankly, it took longer then than it does now in terms of, you know, if you have good work and something to show for it, you, you you know, people can see that and you can advance quicker than, than I did back, you know, back at that time. But I just want to, I don't want to make it sound like, like, oh yeah, that's easy for you to say you, you know, take your parents allowance and, you know, take your money. It's like, no, I was, I was working minimum wage jobs. Mm -hmm. I was working 30 hours a week, you know, at my work study job in college while taking a full course load. Like I I worked my ass off probably harder than you should, anyone should have to need to. So I'm not saying that that's a good thing or the way, the way that it needs to be. Uh, the, the, the point that I'm making is no matter how little money you make to figure out a living situation for yourself, where you're not, uh, you're getting past the point where you're living paycheck to paycheck so that you can sock some money away to cushion your transition to being able to take the right the right jobs for advancing your cinematography career instead of the money jobs. Yeah, so that's the money part. I think that there's anything more I can say about that transition. How about the networking aspect? You know, you talk about like meeting the people that were hiring those positions. You know, you were looking to like, how do you meet those people? Like, how do you go and say, okay, I'm interested in shooting narrative features. Now I need to go find those people. That's the million dollar question, isn't it? <laughs> yes, it is. That's why I'm asking. If I had, you know, if I had the, uh, the answer to that, I could probably make a lot of money as a career coach. <laughs> Um, there is no, there is no easy answer. Um, I can tell you what I did, you know, I, I I was like, okay, where are the filmmakers at? Like, okay, they're at Sundance for, for one. Um, and I'll, I'll talk more about Sundance because Sundance is a huge part of my journey, even though I've never had a, um, feature film play there. So a lot of people are like, oh, shouldn't I wait to go to Sundance until I have a movie there? And I'm like, no, not at all. We'll get get back to that in a second. But there are other basically if you live in New York or L.A. or even if you're in, you know, smaller markets that have a thriving, you know, indie film scene like Austin or, um, you know, I can't really say the many other places, but I know they're out there. Basically find the organizations like like I would go to anything that New York women in film and television, you know, I'm I'm based in New York. So I would I'm bi coastal, so I'm I'm also in LA a lot. That which was also part of it. Like at a certain point in my career, mm-hmm. I got to the point where it's like, okay, I need to be known in LA. Even for the 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 there's a certain level of jobs in New York that you need to be the decision makers are in LA. So mm-hmm. even if they're shooting in New York, they need to know who the New Yorkers are or they need to know who you are, even if you're based in New York. So I actually spent a lot of time in L.A. That that was part of it. That was part of, my, of go to where the filmmakers are and mm-hmm. and the, the investing in the networking is that, you know, I, I come to Los Angeles a lot. I probably there, you know, on average uh, two months a year, um, even though my permanent residence is New York and I know people in L.A., who don't realize that my permanent residence is New York because they see me in LA out and about 
regularly enough. You know, they probably see me just as much as they see other people who do live full time (laughs) because I'm very active socially. So, so yeah, find the organizations basically, you know, find who has events. I'm going to um, a networking event tonight that I haven't been to since prior to COVID. That's like the filmmaker meetup. At, At a certain point in your career, you'll, after going to a bunch of these, you'll start to figure out which ones pay off for you in terms of the, um, the, uh, I'm going to say the audience, but the attend, you know, the fellow attendees, like who, who's there and is that the kind of people that is worth you meeting or, you know, or are you just going to meet people who are trying to break in and are not, are not established and really, um, uh, you know, are not going to be able to help you in, in, in any way. So, but you don't really know what those are until you try. And, and certainly everyone is different in terms of where they're at mm-hmm. career wise and, and who, and who you meet and how social you are. You know, I, I used to think that networking was a dirty word, that it was like schmoozing and that it was like used car salesmen, you know, having an agenda and, you know, trying to like, you know, when you smell of desperation that like you, you can't, there's an article in no film school that interviewed me about, how to make Sundance work for you. It's a really good article, actually. So I still send it out to people. And it, it, it it's relevant to more than just Sundance. It's relevant to networking in general. And one of the things that I say in there is, you know, you're not going to get very far if you approach networking, like meeting people, like you're trying to convince them to hire you. Mm. You, you basically think of it like you're making new friends. And some of those relationships will lead to something and some and a lot of them won't. You know, I, I look at it like planting seeds. Mm-hmm. You know, you never know which ones are going to grow or how fruitful they're going to be or how long they're going to take. Uh, certainly the ones that you tend to and, pay, you know, give love and attention and watering are more likely to bear fruit. So when I would go to um, events and I would meet people that I wanted to stay in touch with, with I would make like a follow-up list and I would, you know, stay in touch with people every so often, just, you know, check in with them, you know, get on their mailing list, follow what they're doing. You know, if they posted something that you liked, you know, drop a note, compliment it, make a comment on their Instagram, et cetera, but just, you know, keep that relationship alive. And, and I learned that from meeting several people that I did not um, follow up with that went on to you know, have very successful, like, oh, they shot a feature and they hired a DP and too bad it wasn't like too bad. I didn't stay in better touch with them because maybe they would have considered me for that. But that Mm -hmm. was years ago. And you never, like I said, you never know which ones are going to go somewhere. Need to hire an underwater cinematographer in the Caribbean or a drone certified cinematographer in South America? How about a Mandarin speaking cinematographer that can work in Europe? We gotcha. Our comprehensive database of over 300 members is searchable by location, language, specialties, affiliations, and genre slash categories. Visit our site now and find your next superstar collaborator at icfcfilm.com. Well, I mean, since you brought it up, let's talk about Sundance. <laughs> I have heard that before that you don't have to have a film on Sundance to actually go and get a lot out of it. In fact, one of our earlier guests was talking about her first Sundance experience and about how it was great in that way. Can you talk a little bit about how it's impacted your career since you mentioned it? Yeah, the the first year I went to Sundance, I had a pretty high profile short film that I had shot that I thought was like the best chance of anything I'd ever done to actually get in. Mm-hmm. And it didn't it didn't get in. And when it didn't get in, I found myself more disappointed 
that I wasn't going to get to go to Sundance than the than for the success of the film. And I realized, wait, I could just go. Like if 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 what I'm like disappointed about is that I don't get to go to Sundance, why don't I just go to Sundance? Because clearly I want to go to Sundance. So I went for the first time in 2005 and it was so fantastic and so impactful that I'm like, I'm coming back every year. And I got to a point where pretty much every, for the first several years, all of my best jobs of the coming or of the following year were direct results of relationships that I had made at Sundance. So that happened many years in a row. And I got to the point where it's like, I turned down work in January in order to go to Sundance. That going to Sundance was more important to me than any one partic- particular job. And mm-hmm. I, I only I only missed one because I was shooting it um, in Tanzania. Oh, cool. And another time I got booked for a docuseries very last minute and was like, it was shooting over the first weekend of Sundance. And I already had my Sundance tickets and my hot, my condo and whatnot. So I flew to Sundance, got unpacked, got my stuff situated, flew back to New York to shoot and then flew back to Sundance. So even though I had to take this job, because it wasn't a one day job, it was like Mm a, you know, 10 week job or something. Mm -hmm. But but it's like if I wasn't available for that first shoot, I was going to lose out on the job. So I still like I still wasn't willing to miss (laughs) Sundance. So so. That's how strongly I feel about Sundance. Now I'll tell you why. Sundance is a really, really special community. Mm. Everyone there is there because they are serious about film. So there is an openness and an accessibility that it's part of what makes it special versus like Tribeca Mm -hmm. is that everyone is taking over this mountain town. So it's like this bubble, this isolated bubble, unlike for example, Tribeca that just is happening in New York City. And if you're waiting in line for a movie, probably uh, most of the people standing with you in line are just mm-hmm. New York City civilians who like movies and want to come, you know, see what's at Tribeca. Whereas at Sundance, chances are uh, everyone is involved in the film industry in some way. You know, you, some had mo- you had to go there. <laughs> you had to go there. And, yeah. and so there's a people instantly take you seriously if you're there. They want, mm-hmm. like, you can just start talking to strangers um, on the bus, at the grocery store, in line, and they want to talk to you. Like, that, like, or people might start talking to you, or, or you might be talking to some about something with your friend, and someone next to you overhears you and is like, oh, did you work on that movie? I have tickets for that tomorrow, you know, kind of thing. So there's this community spirit and, and openness there that you know, you could spend an entire year in New York or L.A. trying to line up the meetings with the people that you can very easily cross paths with all day, every day. You, you can get more done in, in five days in January in Utah than you could an entire year of, of uh, working your ass off to try and get meetings with the, of people that won't take them with you uh, because they're not they, they're busy and they're not going to make the time for you. Whereas they're there at Sundance for to meet people and you're there. And so you can meet them. So you can, um, you can be like, Oh, I'm going to be at Sundance. You're going to be at Sundance. Want to grab a coffee? And people are like, sure. Or they'll be like, Oh, I'll be at this lounge on Tuesday. Why don't you stop by? And it's, or it's like, Oh, my friend has a, has a movie there. You should meet them. Like everyone can, it's like this super connector event where everyone is willing 
or most people, I should say, are, are willing to connect you with other people who are there. If you're there, they'll introduce you to people. There's a lot of spontaneity. And, you know, it, getting into all of the parties uh, takes some know-how and some inroads and some practice and some connections. Mm-hmm. But if you don't have any of those, if you just show up and you keep your ears out and you're friendly and outgoing, you will find enough to do where you will meet people. Like maybe you're not on that list, you know, for that line out the door at that, you know, thing on Main Street, but you end up talking to someone at the coffee shop that invites you to their condo or their football viewing party. And then, you know, you're hanging out in somebody's hot tub and you meet someone else and like, oh, we're going to this thing next. And you, it, there, there's plenty of things that are open as well as things that are closed. So you don't need to be in the know of all of those things um, as long as you are outgoing and connect, you, there's people to connect with everywhere and you mm-hmm. can get a lot out of it, even if you don't necessarily know how to get into the parties. Pivoting a little bit, if you could give advice to like 23 or 24 year old Jendra, what is something you wish you knew when you were starting out? I wish I knew how much bigger L.A. was than New York in terms of the industry. I have advised many people at the start of their career, like, where, you know, like, oh, I'm going to move to New York or L.A. or this place or Atlanta or that place, or whatever. What, where should I go? And my, my answer differs depending on what their interest is. But like if if they want to work their way up through the crew rat ranks, I've lately been telling them to move to Atlanta. But if they want to be a writer, I tell them to go to L.A. So I, I really didn't have a grasp until I started going to L.A. how much bigger the industry was in L.A. than New York. And the reason I had not moved to L.A. permanently is because I have gotten you know, pretty established in New York as, as has my husband. So I don't want to like, just give up everything that I've built here to go and move there. But if I had started there, I do wonder, you know, I mean, now I've shot my TV show and I have a lot of hopes about what that might open up for my career. But until that happened, I was struggling and I was frustrated and I was, you know, banging my head against the wall about trying to break in. And I've been doing this for so long and I'm getting older and I'm not getting anywhere. And and I was wondering, you know, I should have moved to L.A. 15 years ago. You know, like how would my career have been different uh, if I moved to L.A.? So that's one thing. Well, not if anything else. Yes. I spent too long early in my career focused on uh, the technical and mm-hmm. the technology And I spent a lot of effort trying to advance my career, like focused on my career instead of focused on my art Mm. uh, and 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 finding my voice and Mm. and what is my what makes my creative expression unique. And I think that the DPs who shoot up to the, you know, to the top early, like young in their careers are the ones that you see something unique in their vision and in their work where you're just like, oh, wow, that's different. That's special. That's uniquely that person. And I guess I didn't get enough of a art school education to have like oriented me that way. I was more concerned with making a living and how basically how am I going to survive? How am I going to get hired? How am I going to get people to notice me? And, and, a lot of that was focusing on the technical because that was, uh, you know, when you 
are working on yourself, there's like what you know you know, what you know that you don't know, and then what you don't know that you don't know. And the the obvious thing to do is what you know that you don't know. So it's like, oh, there's a new camera out and I haven't used it yet. Or I don't have that much of an understanding of anamorphic lenses or like wh- wherever the gap that you can see is. And then like, OK, I'm going to go um, test things and educate myself about this and, you know, read articles and talk to mentors and like, you know, further my understanding and exposure and knowledge about this topic or this subject matter that's like a lot of that that's out there that you that you're like oh i need to be better i want to understand filters more like whatever topics you can think of that there's there's ways to go i guess the path is clear of, mm-hmm. of how to where to put your energy to get better about that thing mm-hmm. but the path is not clear right. about where to put your energy to um you know tap into your soul's expression or how to get more intuitive or how to, you know, be be more inspired or think out of the, out of the box or, you know, any things that have to do with with artistry. It's just so um, nebulous and unclear. So it, that I guess I was I was more scared of that because I didn't mm-hmm. know what to I didn't know what to do with it or I didn't know how to develop it. So that that's something that I wish that I had figured out earlier. Well, what was your approach to developing this or the artistry of the of of this job? I just looked at what what inspires me, like what kinds of things when I do them, when I see them, when I'm exposed to them, do I feel most excited, inspired, alive inside, et cetera. And 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 release the idea that that has to come from, you know, other people's work in film, you know, so Mm. it was like because that's where. I found those things was like travel, international travel is is, is incredibly inspiring to me. Uh, I love going to museums, street photography, the the presence of, you know, n- not planning a photo shoot where I've um, come up with an idea and, and produced it or whatever, but just like walking around with no plan or with just open observation to the world and, you know, putting myself out of my comfort zone kind of thing. Or also um, Burning Man. <laughs> uh, going going to Burning Man, going to Burning Man parties, getting involved in the Burning Man community. And um, and I found that I love costumes. I love other mm. people's costumes. I love Halloween. I love making costumes. And, and I don't mean, you know, costume department and, and film or costume professionally. I mean, just for, for fun. Dressing up. In yeah. Dressing. Yeah. Playing dress up. Playing dress up. So I love playing dress up. So I started going to costume parties. And so that that inspires me. And so, you know, I I have found that, you know, having a more full life that's not just obsessed with my career, like makes me a more, you know, interesting and and well-rounded person Mm -hmm. Um, and, and, you know, gives me ideas. Those are those are the tapping into the things that make me unique that back to that whole thing about your your uniqueness is is not just trying to you know copy someone else's path or style yeah yeah, i think we speak a lot about that on this podcast everybody kind of has to have some identity outside of being a dp right 
and we have to have some identity outside of filmmaking. Um, on that point, you know, how do you navigate your work-life balance? Like, especially if your husband's a DP also, like, you know, <laughs> how much of your life, you know, can you step away and say, like, I have to focus on my life that's not involved in film? And how do you balance that? Well, I, I started to be perfectly honest that I ended up getting to a point where I made the choice to not have children. I thought that I wanted to have children. A lot of other women DPs who were established and successful before I was will uh, recall me having sit down, taking them to coffee and having conversations with them yeah. about about having children with with the intention and goal of like that I would do that and that I wanted mm -hmm. to do that and how to make that work. And I never got to a point where I felt like I could make it work. You know, I, I got to an age where it was, uh, you know, time to make a time to get serious about making a decision kind, kind of thing. And I recognized that I did not feel like I could be that have have the career that I wanted and be the kind of mother that I wanted, that that mm -hmm. something would would have to give. And, and I personally felt that I was not established enough when it was that time in my life to be able to take the time away from my career to, you know, focus on pregnancy, nursing, in, in rearing an infant, et cetera, and then being, you know, taking that time and then going back to my career. I felt like where I was at was just uh, pushing the, the stone uphill and that if I let go of it, it was going to fall back down to the bottom mm -hmm. again because I hadn't gotten to the next level mm -hmm. or plateau. So, that, I mean, that's my personal story. I'm not like advocating that people shouldn't <laughs> have children. It's a very personal choice. And certainly there are plenty of uh, successful women DPs who have made it work. But I mean, the bottom line is my, as my best friend who is not in the industry and does have children told me like I was not serious enough about having kids or I would have just done it. I would have mm -hmm. just figured out a way to make it to make it work. And yeah. so that that's part one to that answer is is um, it's a lot easier, I would say, um, the, the, the work life balance that I don't that I don't have kids. I think it's easier that my husband is also a DP because he understands when mm -hmm. when I'm in a situation where I am having to sacrifice other areas of my life, including my home life, my the attention that he gets, my ability to participate in the household, all of those kinds of things that he gets it because he does it too. But this last show, which was 10 months, uh, was the a big a big shift, I guess, in, in terms mm. of having that long of a job because up until then, I was doing indie films that, you know, between prep and shooting were, you know, maybe two to two and a half months of my life. And I would give myself over to that movie 100% for that period of time, knowing mm -hmm. that that was going to end and that I would pick up the pieces three weeks from now or whatever it was. Mm -hmm. But I'm like, OK, going into this 10 month TV show, that's I can't approach it that way. I have to I have to relate to this more like a job. <laughs> where it's like I need to stop what I'm doing and I need to um, have a weekend and I need to and, and I wasn't very I wasn't always very good at it like I, I got to very quickly figure out like how much I could actually accomplish and you know have, I have to say no to a lot of things I had to say no to social invitations right and left I had to say no to weddings and and uh you know family obligations i had to say no to pretty much nearly everything 
in my life, I could do like one thing a week, <laughs> whether that was see someone for dinner or get a massage or, you know, it was like I would spend Saturday sleeping mm-hmm. and then I would spend Sunday, you know, watching last week's episode, uh, watching the edit of the one I'm about to color correct so I could prepare my color correction notes and get ready for the coming weeks, whether that's shot listing or you know, feeling like I'm ready for whatever's coming up that week. So I kind of spend most of my Sunday working and most of my Saturday sleeping. So it it was, it was hard. I, I wouldn't say that it's, it, it had very much balance to it. How I'm compensating is I am um, taking a few months off. Like, mm-hmm. uh, I don't know yet whether our show is renewed. We, we're not going to find out until May. Uh, if it if it does, I would like to go back for another season or if I or if it doesn't or I'm offered, you know, something else that I'm hoping to do another TV show that would probably start up, you know, depending on how the strike, oh, <laughs> yeah. go, you know, July or August. So it's like I'm not taking any long form work during this period of time. Like my agent's like, oh, your show's winding down, put you up for this feature. I was like, no, I am not doing a feature like I have a lot of unlived life that I need to catch up on, you know, so I, mm-hmm. I went skiing in Colorado last week. I'm going on a cruise to the Caribbean next week. I'll probably spend mm-hmm. the month of June in LA. I'm going to go to Cindy gear and a wedding mm-hmm. and just, well, we would love sk- to get a coffee with you. <laughs> yes. Yeah. Yes. That, yes. That's, that would be great. So uh, ba- basically it's everything that I just invested in terms of, yeah. or I should say sacrifice and, and giving myself over, to a 10 month job. Now I'm just like, no, I don't want work right now. I have, you know, I want to see my family. I want to sleep and I want to watch movies and I want to go to museums and I want to go to dance parties and I want to travel. And, you know, so work hard, play hard, work hard, play hard. Yeah. You need to hire a cinematographer. No, wait, what? And you're still listening to us. Oh, you're being supportive. We really appreciate that. We really do. What's that? How can you support us even if you can't hire us? Well, you can tell people who are looking for IDP to take a gander at our extensive 300 plus member database. Or you can always help us out with donations. If you want to help us out with, um, you know, monetary support, you can go to icfcfilm.com friends to donate. We're an all volunteer run group, so we rely on donations to keep the lights on. Not the literal lights we use, though. Production foots the bill on those. Although, if someone wants to send us a 10K with power for our next project, we won't say no to that either. So coming from features and getting your show, um, can you talk a little bit about what that transition is for? Like, did you reach out to mentors? Like, how did you prep yourself mentally for stepping into a world that you've never been in before? Uh, Yes, uh, I jokingly kept referring to the mentor committee. (laughs) <laughs> so I had I had several mentors that I would call upon. I didn't want to overburden any one person. So yeah, I would sort of like spread out my I mostly called upon my mentors in the prep stage because mm-hmm. this yeah. was a season one show. And I had done one feature film where I was involved, where it was all sets. And I got I was involved in um, weighing in on the design of the sets. Like, where do I want? the windows and how tall the walls need to be and like those kinds of things. So I, I had done that once um, and I had shot on a TV show, The Family, where I was a, um, a tandem unit DP, where I was shooting uh, sets that had not, you know, that that were only existed for the scenes that I was 
shooting them for. So I was establishing those sets, but I wasn't involved in the des- at the design stage to say like, mm-hmm. oh, I need these. Well, wa- I want wall sconces over here and let's put the window on this side and, you know, that kind of thing. So that was, you know, definitely talk to a bunch of people about anything that was like, I haven't done this before. There's got to be things that I might be missing or that I don't know that I don't know. So- sometimes I would call someone about something, assuming they're like, like, oh, is there anything I should know about whatever? And like, they're like, no, you got it. You know, it didn't really necessarily amount to anything concrete, but at least it made me feel better (laughs) that it was like, like the first time that I did a a big uh, stabilized head car mount, right? But it's like, oh, do I want, you know, uh, a matrix head or a Libra head or, you know, what's Mm -hmm. the difference between that head and this head? And and my key grip was very good about, about advising me about that kind of stuff too. But like, you know, I called up Bill Bennett and was like, who specializes mm. in car commercials. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I was like, hey, can I talk to you about, you know, different kinds of stabilized heads and what I'm doing and what's the best choice for, for this kind of thing. So definitely, yes, having a um, having people that you can call upon to, when when you're leveling up to be like, OK, I'm in uh, I'm getting into territory that I haven't done before. Let me uh, set myself up for success by talking mm-hmm. to the people who are expert in these things to make sure that I don't make any rookie mistakes. So basically having that humility, I guess, to to call people like, hey, I haven't done this before. Can I ask you some questions? Uh, instead of pretending that you're supposed to know everything. Like and then right. that, you know, and I had the support of my producers as well, like who, you know, they were they were comparing me to someone else who, you know, they're like, well, you do a really good, you know, talking about myself, they're like, you do a really good job of leaning on your team like when you're in a situation where you haven't been in before like you have the confidence to say hey I haven't done this before like you mm-hmm. know what do I need to know and and without thinking that that you're supposed to know those things or that you're not you admitting not knowing those things makes you look weak like sometimes being vulnerable can make you look more confident because yeah. you're like I'm, I don't I don't, you know, nobody knows everything. Well, I think that sometimes there's this like, you know, fake it till you make it. People don't think that they're going to get the job if they've never done it before. Right. People can see right through that. I know. But I think <laughs> there is a mentality there, right? That's like, oh, like you, <laughs> if you've never done any of those things, then, you know, you, you can't get the job. And I think people, people just lie a lot of times, I think. So yeah, I'm not a I'm not a good I'm not a good liar, and I'm not a believer. I don't the right approach. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> no, I mean, like for example, if I was in an interview and someone were to ask me, like, "Have you ever done X?" That was something that might be key to that show's mm-hmm. approach, mm-hmm. and it was something that I hadn't done. You know, I would say, you know, no, I haven't, but I'm familiar with you know A, B, and C. And yeah. I have, you know, relationships, D, E, and F that I can call upon, you know, like, like, you know, oh, I'm friends with this DP who won an Oscar for that, you know, thing that's related to that. And I can give him a call. And and so, you know, I think that having an answer mm-hmm. as to what would you do in the situation of something that you're faced with that you haven't done before is sort of like, oh, they can hand, they can handle this. Like, mm-hmm. it, you it's not like, like I said, not everyone has done everything. And especially if, if they know that you haven't done a movie this size before, then they probably realize that you haven't worked with XY machine before or something. You'd be mm-hmm. like, oh no, I'll just ask my key grip and 
the the the, the I think the confidence comes from the leadership and mm-hmm. the big picture knowledge of like how do you use this tool? Like what would you use it for and and having familiarity of like what's out there but but the actual you know nuts and bolts of it like that's somebody else's job not mm-hmm. yours and so mm-hmm. it, you know as long as you can speak to it in a way that you don't come across as intimidated by it or like you know oh shit i have no idea you know what that is or, or something you know <laughs> Or actually, I've said, I've said that sometimes, not not the oh shit part, but like if someone's <laughs> talking some, you know, piece of equipment or something, I'd be like, be like, oh, I'm sorry, I'm not familiar with that. And mm-hmm. then they'll say what and I'm like, oh, like the Fuzima, what's it? Oh, yeah, I use that on this other thing, you know, and yeah. instead mm-hmm. of just pretending that you're like, oh, yeah, well, OK, no, 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 no. But I mean, you're I. I know you're also very, very technical, as you've said, and um, I know that you've also been part of the ASC Technical Committee. Is that right? The uh, Motion Imaging Technology Council. Yeah, it used to be called the um, Technology Subcommittee, but they Mm. renamed it because it's got so many subcommittees within it Mm -hmm. that they they yeah, they they're like, it's not really subcommittee. It's a the other thing about it is it's the only um, I don't know about only, but like. Yeah, I guess the only committee of the ASC that's open to non-members. So it's a lot of associate members. It's a lot of manufacturers and a lot Mm -hmm. of, you know, manufacturers with a long history of of customer relations in the industry end Mm -hmm. up becoming um, invited to be associate members. But it's it's also people who are interested to be involved. So it's like Mm -hmm. if you'll be if you'll be if you put in the work, you know, to help with the committee, the lens subcommittees, um, Slack group or, you know, whatever the different things do or like, oh, we're doing the tests, you know, for mm-hmm. these solid state lighting stuff, you know, they'll they'll embrace people's involvement who mm-hmm. are who are willing to to be involved. So uh, I think a lot of people don't, don't know that. They think mm-hmm. that the ASC is this very closed thing, but the, the Motion Imaging Technology Council is, is something that, you know, if you want to get involved, is a it's something that's open to people. Well, let's talk about that. How did you get involved and why was that important to you? I'm trying to remember how I got involved. It was either through one of my mentors, uh, David Stump, ASC, who who's the head of the camera subcommittee, or my friend Donna Kinski, who's a, a, a DP in LA who does a lot of who does a lot of uh, work for the ASC and a lot of mm-hmm. uh, volunteering with the ASC and a lot of uh, they call it my tech uh, mm-hmm. for the abbreviation and maybe probably a combination of both is that when I would be in LA it would be like oh there's a meeting you know this Tuesday about the solid state lighting committee kind of thing and be like, oh, mm-hmm. I'm I'm interested in that. I'll go to that. Like, for example, I went to that one because I was doing a panel for Local 600 on the East Coast about uh, LED, uh, you know, emerging LED, to, uh, sorry, color science in mm-hmm. LEDs. So it was mm-hmm. like, oh, these are the people who do this stuff. Let me go to this committee meeting and connect mm-hmm. with these people. And so it, it was that was one of the reasons why I did that one in terms of like, why was it important to me? Otherwise, I just thought it was a way to be a way to be involved, a way to, mm-hmm. um, you know, understand how the ASC works. You know, you, you meet a lot of 
uh, like I said, a lot of manufacturers. So you get relationships with people you hear about new stuff before it's come out. I don't know, I guess I'm just because I'm interested in, in that kind of stuff. Uh, pivoting a little bit, uh, you have that really famous picture uh, that you use a lot on, I think on your profile, I've seen it, uh, that is an homage to the Rosie the Riveter, the We Can Do It um, with the camera on it. Can you talk a little bit about that? Like how that came about? Yeah, that's, um, I love talking about that. So uh, I did that as a photo shoot for my business card in 2010. I had basically I I had a a really fun electrician business card, and then I saw the the power you know people's response to having like a really awesome card, and I kept wanting an awesome DP business card, and I kept not having any good ideas for one. So it'd be like, oh my stack of cards is out, I just got to order new ones, and they were kind of plain and boring and matter of fact. And then I had a friend who was a photographer who was um, at my house and she had a really cool business card. And I was mm-hmm. like, Hey, can we brainstorm ideas for, for a new business card? And she's like, yeah, sure. So she started asking me branding questions. Like, mm-hmm. like what makes you different from your competition? What do you want people to think of when they think of you? What, what do you stand for? Like those kinds of things to like leading questions to start to help, you know, ideate where this mm-hmm. is going. And I said, you know, it was around the time that I was starting to embrace the fact that I was a woman DP as a, as opposed to trying to um, ig- ignore it or hide it. You know, mm-hmm. like, again, we're talking 2010. So at that, you know, and, and I'd been working as a full-time DP since 2005 and as an aspiring DP since, you know, get, got into film school in 1992. So I've been at this for quite a while. And, you know, early was just in, in trying to be taken seriously just denying my femininity and just trying to be one of the guys and, you know, basically making it like, like, let's overlook the fact that you're a woman. Like it's like, Mm -hmm. it's irrelevant. And then I got to the point, I was like, no, that's what makes me unique. That's what makes me special. There's very few women DPs that are, you know, established in the industry at that point. So I was starting to embrace that. So I was like, okay, I want to do something that is like, you know, like girl power, you know, like, you know, like, like Rosie the Riveter. And I like held my arm up, like making the, the fists, you know, the, um, you know, the, the, the bicep uh, flex that, that Rosie the Riveter does. And when I did that physically, when I was like, you know, like Rosie the Riveter, I realized it was like I was holding a camera. Mm. And that like when I made that, that, that physical motion and then, and then it was like this aha moment, like this, oh my God, Rosie the Riveter with the camera. And it was like, okay, the, there, that's it. The conversation, we found it. Like, <laughs> don't need to go any further. That's that's the answer. So I, so my friend who was I was brainstorming with, her name is Annika Schoeneveld. She's a director. Um, she was a local 600 still photographer at the time. So mm. she took the photographs and I um, I did like a, I, I, I shot it at, um, at Ari Rensel in mm-hmm. New York. So I went there. And you know, used their two thirty five camera, and we built it out. Um, my prep tech that day was uh, Michelle Clementine, who mm. is now a DP. But yeah. um, and uh, it was the day that the first Alexa arrived at 
Harry. Like they'd been, you know, um, they've been announced and whatnot, but they finally got theirs. And I was like, should I do one with the Alexa too? Because we knew the Alexa was going to be a big deal. And I was like, I don't know, it should be the retro thing with the classical thing. And the t- technology is going to change over time. And and then the the um, people at Harry were like, it's irrelevant. You can't have it. Like as soon as it arrives, <laughs> we have to turn it around. Somebody's waiting for it. We can't even give it to you for an hour for a photo shoot. It's like, okay, never mind. Wow. So I had, I, I did like a trial run with the makeup artist. I took, um, I had the shirt. I took it to an embroiderer to have, you know, because the original Rosie has like the, um, the, I don't know if it's the iron workers or wh- whatever the union, you know, riveters logo mm-hmm. is like on the collar of her work shirt. Mm-hmm. So I had the local 600 logo embroidered on my on my shirt. I had the um the head wrap with the polka dots. Mm-hmm. Um I and uh, Rosie's is red. I went with pink because pink is a signature color of mine. Um I I bought the fabric on Amazon and I took it to a tailor and had them craft it instead of me just having to tie up a do rag like mm-hmm. I wanted it to be neat and you know mm-hmm. so I took it to it. So yeah I went like all out for this for this photo shoot, the 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 card, of course, was a big hit instantaneously as a card. And then I should figure out what year this was. Maybe four or five years ago, Ari reached out to me and said, "Can we use your picture for International Women's Day?" And mm-hmm. uh, and I was at, for for social media, and mm-hmm. I was like, "Sure." And then it went viral. And then it was like, I think that first year it had over two million shares. In impressions in one in one day. So now wow. that so now that image comes up every International Women's Day and it's taken on a life of its own. So it's been um, it's been on the cover of magazines. It's uh, local six hundred put it on a t shirt. Actually, they did that right away. That was before it went mm-hmm. viral. Uh, there's a guy in Australia who got it as a tattoo. <laughs> <laughs> it uh it gets shared without it being attributed to me, so it, it's it's just like my name has gotten de- detached. From it, so sometimes people will share it, and then someone will tag me. Hey, that's you know gender DP on on its Instagram. But the the, the one funny thing was there was a, a group like a women cinematographer group in Brazil that was using it, and they were photoshopping uh, the faces of each of individual people of their members on it and sharing that. And so mm-hmm. I wrote to them and I was like, oh, my God, that's so funny. That's me. And they're like, oh, you want us to do your face? You can send us your face and we'll put your face on. And I'm like, <laughs> like, no, that's actually me and my pic- that's my picture. That's me. <laughs> like, I'm the one who created that. Um, so, yeah, it's 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 fun that it's that it means something to people and that it's that it's taken on um a life of its own. One, one of these days I want to get a Wikipedia page, you know, and like include the include the rose in the river on my Wikipedia patch. <laughs> yeah, because it's, it's, it's so iconic, I feel. And it's such a great idea. And like, yeah, I, I think that's actually really important because like, I think we we talk about branding uh, ourselves nowadays, you know, and I think that's really smart of you to have thought about that way back in 2010 before branding yourself as a DP even really was a thing. So that's that's really incredible. Yeah, yeah. I mean, when people see it, it's like, wow, that's great branding. Like, yeah. Um, yeah. I've had people see it and be like, I want to hire you just based on that. Like what that <laughs> tells me about you and who you are and what you're like, 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 I want to hire you based on that. Yeah, that's amazing. That is really, really amazing. 
Vicini is a woman and Latina-owned boutique camera rental house based in Los Angeles. They are passionate about the nuanced design that goes into visual storytelling and as such are committed to supporting filmmakers tell their stories with the best tools available. Plus, for busy cinematographer or camera crew parents, they also offer childcare services during prep. So when you're looking for camera rentals for your next project, check out their extensive repertoire of optics and cameras at www.bcine.com or write to rentals at bcine.com for general inquiries. Let's put it out there, just manifesting it. If you could shoot anything in the world, anything, 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 what would it be and why? I would like to do a blockbuster film, a really big film, but I want to do something with heart. I don't want to mm-hmm. just do something that is, you know, eye candy or meaningless, you know, um, you know, like Titanic. Mm-hmm. I know a lot of a mm-hmm. lot of people like poo-poo Titanic or like shit on Titanic for <laughs> being cheesy or whatever, but I think Titanic's an excellent film. I think that I agree. I, I agree. I agree. I think that <laughs> the the heart of the story and the connection mm-hmm. and the emotion and the you know it, it's not just a spectacle. You know, it, yeah. it, it's actually you know grabs you by the feels and touches people. Like so, yeah. I, I would love to do something like something like that. Yeah, that is awesome. Titanic, Titanic is the reason I wanted to become a DP. Amazing. (laughs) I walked out of theaters. I was a kid. I walked out of theaters and I was just like blown away by the scope Mm -hmm. of it. Mm -hmm. And I said, I want to do that. I want to make that. Yeah. Yeah. One of my regrets in life is that my parents didn't let me watch it in the theaters. So I had to watch it at home with like two VHS thing, you know, the the two parter. Um, And that was like, I think my 11th or 12th birthday party that's what we did um and no i but but it's like i really like it it's a story that it doesn't focus on the spectacle i mean the sinking of the titanic is the backdrop to this really epic love story and i think that's what really touches people at the end of the day i think yeah like walking dead the zombie apocalypse is the backdrop to Mm -hmm. the 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 cult the yeah the like social breakdown you know, of the of the, the breakdown of the social fabric and, you know, what happens when uh, the shit hits the fan and people are, yeah. you know, uh, de- That's why desperate. That's I like sci-fi a lot, yeah. too. You know, yeah. sci-fi yeah. allows you to do that, too. Sci-fi just puts the mm-hmm. backdrop in a world that you can bend the rules a little bit, but they're still just human stories, right? You're just mm-hmm. like, the human element is there. You just change the rules a little bit and put yourselves in positions that you normally wouldn't be in. Yeah, yeah. They're lenses through which we can really examine key aspects of humanity, I think. So, yeah, I would love to do either a fantasy or a sci-fi. Like, I feel like you have more creative freedom when you're freed from uh, reality. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah. you know, I do nat- I do naturalism really well. But the things that excite me the most are when you get to be more expressive. And, mm-hmm. you know, if you have a world building story where you know you're not even trying to be bound by the constraints of reality you know like all bets are off you can do whatever the hell you want yeah. visually and creatively I, I find that very exciting okay so our last question is a really big scary well not really <laughs> three-parter question so the first part is what is your favorite movie the second part is what is your comfort movie like the comfort movie that like really 
makes you feel warm and fuzzy inside, the thing you'll like watch when you're feeling super crappy and just want to feel better. Um, and the third question is, what is a movie that has influenced you as a DP the most or has influenced your cinematography the most? I love this question because I so often get asked, what is your favorite movie? And then I have to answer it in stages like you're asking anyway, because my answer to my favorite movie is not a helpful answer to be. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So then I have to like start answering more movies too, because my favorite movie is Baraka. Um, mm-hmm. And for those who are not familiar with Baraka, it is a very non-traditional movie. It's it's a non-narrative art film. I would not call it a documentary. It's more like a, a tone poem where mm-hmm. it's it's like um, it's shot in 27 countries in 70 millimeter, uh, a lot of time lapse. And it's it's all just visuals set to music of different cultures uh, around the world, often participating in uh, different rituals. And it's 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 really just about it's not about anything. It's 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 really a, a very uh, personal experience. But mm-hmm. what what it means to me is about the um, the ties, the, the, the threads that, that tie through different cultures and, and humanity and how we can be, you know, incredibly different on the surface but we're all just you know humans trying to connect to something bigger than ourselves um so i i i I feel i i've I've seen baraka more than anything else i will fly to la to watch it uh at the egyptian and 70 millimeter Mm. every once in a while uh i bought uh, a laser disc of it when i was in college because i couldn't bear to to get it on vhs and so then i bought a laser disc player (laughs) after the fact (laughs) <laughs> and then so yeah but baraka is my favorite film um i just can watch it over and over and over again and it's just so deep and meaningful my comfort movie is lost in translation mm. so yeah. so sometimes when people ask my favorite movie and i say well baraka but that that's not very accessible so i'll tell you my more my favorite more traditional movie <laughs> <laughs> yeah. is is lost in translation and the how did you word the third part of the question? Because I could answer it differently depending on. Um, either the movie that like has influenced you as a cinematographer the most or the movie that influences your cinematography the most. I don't know if I have a stock answer to that question in terms of like the most. I can talk about some films that have been impactful yeah. to me from a cinematography standpoint. Ironically, they're two different Batman movies. Yeah. Nice. Nice. Um, the first one was Batman Begins. Oh, that's shot yeah. by shot by Wally Pfister uh, prior yeah. to The Dark Knight. Uh, mm-hmm. I know a lot of people really like The Dark Knight. Um, stylistically, I was not that I was not very into The Dark Knight. I was very mm-hmm. into Batman Begins. I'm not a superhero movie type of person. So uh, it's kind of ironic that that I'm choosing Batman movies. But the the way that it impacted me was, you know, I, I saw it because, I mean, you kind of expect that anything that's that big is going to have good quality cinematography. But, and then sometimes there are movies that people see, oh, you have to see this because the cinematography is so amazing. Like, you must yeah. see this, like, the Batman, um, which is the other one that I'm going to talk about. Mm-hmm. 
But when I saw Batman Begins, I just saw it because I was like, oh, let's go see your Batman movie or whatever. But the cinematography of it just struck a chord that was like so much to my personal taste, like every aspect of it, where I was just like, wow, this is so me, but not me like I could do right now, like me like I would want to be able to do someday, you know, like like if I if I could do a movie like this, like I guess the, the taste and the choices and the creative expression of it just like really, really jived with my sensibilities in a way that completely shocked me, was not expecting it whatsoever. So that aspect to it made a big, big impact. And mm-hmm. then The Batman uh, was my favorite looking movie of last year. I just loved the way that uh, how boldly visual it was and how the visuals served the storytelling and elevated the, the storytelling. Because I do not, I don't know, I, I'm fascinated by contrasts, but there's also this paradox where I don't believe in showy cinematography. When something is gimmicky and is like, look at me, look at me, then it's like, you're not serving the story if you're just trying if you're just being showy then you're to me that that fails as as good cinematography if if it's taking uh front stage you know front stage instead of supporting the story but the way that the paradox is that you know then that very often makes me more attracted to understated and naturalistic cinematography but then i really appreciate big swings and bold cinematography like requiem for dream um mm. so but anyway the batman i was was like this is really bold and really pushing the envelope and it really serves this storytelling is like a, a a great gelling and partner to the and ele- like i said elevated the the storytelling in a way that i really really admired that's awesome yeah i i, I really like um batman begins i well i like Wally Fister. I mean, the other one, kind of a contemporary of that, that I really love is The Prestige. It's very similar in in that approach. Yeah. I'm a big fan of Greg Frazier, too. I mean, I think Mm -hmm. he's like stylistically his movies, like, you know, to go from Lion to Doom to, you know. Yeah. Just to like have that visual arc and ability is kind of incredible. Well, is there anything you wanted to talk about that we didn't touch on? I don't think so. I think you touched on a lot of great stuff. I I really appreciate having the longer form chats. You know, I do a lot of these that are really rushed where it's like, oh, I'm spending too long answering the boring questions at the beginning that they're asking me. We don't even get to get into the interesting stuff. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So, no, I really uh, I really appreciate the. The flow and the conversationality and the, the length and format. I, I think that this would be the kind of co- podcast that I'll enjoy listening to uh, to all of your other guests. Awesome. That's really great to hear. Yeah. It is really great to hear. <laughs> <laughs> a lot of it is just us rambling. So sometimes. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, so, where can we find you on the internet? Where can people find you? Uh, my personal website is gendrajarnigan.com, J E N D R A J A R N A G I N. Dot com and on Instagram I'm gender DP. Awesome. Well thank you so much thank and you so much. We, this was amazing. Thank you. Thank you so much Amelia and, and Akina.
She was great. <laughs> I say that about every guest, but <laughs> sorry, you're eating. Sorry, I just took a bite of a waffle. <laughs> <laughs> sorry, I just rang you that uh, on that. No, that she was great. Um, yeah, she's so like easy. She like what you were saying. She's really good at speaking. You know, it's mm-hmm. it's funny. It's um, my girlfriend does this Toastmaster thing. Mm-hmm. You know, where like you're forced to public speak every week, and it's like mm-hmm. I have a group of people who have to learn how to do that yeah um you can really just like some people can really speak and she really she's one of those she can really yeah we don't have to ask a lot of questions because it actually fulfills the a lot of these questions and like fills in the answers and fills in the gaps of it yeah there was a bunch of questions that i had in my head that she just answered on her own naturally Uh, i was like that was that was okay great like we can just flow into it I, I just really love her story about the Rosie the Riveter picture because I've, I've always thought that was such an iconic image. Um, I've always just loved it. And hearing that there was like the whole branding story behind it, even before like branding was a thing for us, because I, I have heard uh, or I've been advised that, you know, like you should like, for example, curate your Instagram, curate your social media. Right, but that's what branding is for us now. Like yeah. who carries around business cards, you know, I have business yeah. cards, but they're like sitting like there's like a stack in my wallet that like I haven't given out a business card in a really long time. Right. Everyone's yeah. like, what's your Instagram handle? What's yeah. your website? Exactly. But like thinking about it just as like as a picture, because I'm I'm in a process where like I I have a headshot I like, but it kind of like it's a. It was a shot I took, a, a self-portrait I took when I was, like, messing around with the Canon R5. Oh, it's a real headshot, not, like, a DP yeah. headshot. You know, a no. DP headshot is always, like, the DP behind the camera and, like, you're yeah. looking through the viewfinder. Yeah, you know, because <laughs> like, I just, like, I've been, like, thinking the about... The bigger like, the build, the better. The bigger the build, the better. And, like, both <laughs> things, like... The problem is, like, I, I try to get those shots on set of myself with a camera, but I just have, like, a very serious face and, like, my hair is flying everywhere. And I'm just, like, I just, I feel, and, like, I'm sweaty. It's usually, like, out in the, I don't know. I feel like I never look like <laughs> these are not yeah, good mine, shots. Mine for years, and this is so funny, mine for years, um, you can't really see my face, but it's mm-hmm. shot through a Hasselblad through a waist finder. Ooh. So, I mean, to me, it's always like, I just want to make like the, that branding element mm-hmm. is like very like, I shoot film, guys. I feel I shoot film. I yeah. love film. I love analog cameras. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And like the current one I have is like I was messing around with colored lighting. So I was doing this like contrast lighting thing and I was doing like blue and red just because I was trying to see how how much of that color latitude, I guess, the R5 had. Mm-hmm. And I took a really good picture of myself. I was like, this is cool. It's kind of expressive. You know, it kind of shows like this cool lighting. But I also kind of look like a Smurf. So I'm like, <laughs> I don't know if this is the best headshot. So I'm looking for like something new to put on profile pictures. And like, I've been like, okay, what's something effective? But as you said, kind of shows who I am, but also what I can do or who I can be. Um, Because I think we're thinking of that now in terms of branding. And I think what she did was so innovative and so creative and just so effective, I think. Uh, So there's a lot of... Honestly, I can't imagine like nowadays i mean i can't really imagine like the process of hiring a dp you know like yeah it's like the visuals like who did we're talking to somebody where they were like really what you need to curate your website for is Mm -hmm. just to have like stills on the landing page because that's all they're actually even going to look at Mm -hmm. because that's the brand already you know it's just stylistically like they lance it on the landing page they see the stills and that's it 
Um, they, they don't even like if they really, really like want to or have a lot of time, like then they'll watch the reel or something, you know, but or maybe a minute of the reel. They don't even yeah. watch the whole reel. They watch no. the first minute of it. You know, well, I mean, as a society, we're so bombarded by so much media. That's why, like, you know, every time, like, I work on a short film, like, I always, like, talk to my directors and say, like, look, we have to work on our landing image, our yes. shot, and our landing, or in our yeah. last ending shot, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, those things are so important, you know? Like, shorts mm-hmm. get longer, shorter, however duration, really, like, even me, you know, like there's a lot of times where like I'm two minutes into a short and I'm like, oh, I'm just yeah done. I'm just, my focus has wandered somewhere, mm-hmm, you know, mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. I watch probably honestly as a DP that like shoots a lot of shorts and narratives like content. Like we probably are the people who watch more shorts than the average yeah person in the world you know I'm like I don't mm-hmm. think my mom's seen more than two short films in her whole life you know, yeah. you know? like yeah. normal people don't watch short films it's like maybe there was a short film in front of a, like where do where do people watch short films if you're not in the film industry mm-hmm. right like if yeah. you're just like if you're just a average citizen of whichever country unless you go to a festival and you're watching a short selection or there's like a shorts program playing on maybe on HBO that you click on or Netflix you know on a streaming server like where would you watch a short film you don't yeah i mean you have to actively look for them for sure if you're not in the business so yeah i mean it's it's if you're not in the film business i don't I don't know how many shorts people actually watch. It's a good point. That's what I'm saying, right? That's why that's why it's like it's so important. We are just, you know, constantly bombarded with images. So we have to have mm-hmm. like really like I would say we have two seconds to make an impression to make you keep yes. watching. Yes. You have one yeah. second for your eyes to adjust to see what you're looking yeah. at, and the second second for your brain to say, I'll keep watching or yeah. I'm done. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. I also just I love how candid she was about her decision to not have kids, because I think we've talked to a lot of people here that, you know, have made the opposite choice to, you know, have kids and, you know, how to balance motherhood and like all that stuff. And this is the first person we've had who like was actively made that choice. And I think it's it's really important to hear from that side, too. You know, you know what I wonder, though? I wonder if we like. Like, why is the impetus on women to have that choice, you know? Mm-hmm. Like, if you had been talking to a guy DP, when I asked the question about your work-life balance, you know, like, it, it's like, there's no assumption that I'm talking about children. I respect, I am so candid that she's talking about having children, right? Mm-hmm. But it's almost interesting that it's like, I think she thought that that's what I was asking but I wasn't really you know but I I think that that's interesting that like we like women have to feel that immediately right yeah 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 I mean that's not a question guys get asked because it's like you know how do you work like balance how do you balance you know having a family with this career like that is not a question they get asked at all or because actually it's probably not a question or something they've had to even think about at all at any point in their lives you know because like it's not a thing it's just that's interesting to think that we wouldn't even ask the guys that that Mm -hmm. question really yeah yeah like i feel like i'm asking that question not from a sake of like oh how do you navigate being a dp as a woman and then also navigating that but like as a human being how do you navigate this like extremely kind of high demanding job you know, like a department oh, yeah. head role, like DPs are like, you know, there's a lot of work involved in these roles. And to the average person listening who is not a DP, maybe they don't know the whole aspect of what a DP does. Right. Mm-hmm. But well, I mean, but 
no, I agree. I think that we're asking it from that from that perspective of like, how do you balance this? Because like having a family, no matter who you are, is 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 it's is a whole job in itself. You know, it, it requires so much work. The thing is, I'm just saying like outside of the podcast, just in life in general, I feel that guys don't get asked that question at all, like in this industry or ve- they do very little. I don't know. So do we have a bias in the way that we're asking these questions? Like what do other like DP podcasts sound like? What are the questions? Mm, I feel mm -hmm. like we've been listening to some like. Yeah, I think there might be a bias. I I think that that we could definitely think that there might be a bias. I think we could be self-reflective about that. But for me, I think and I've just had this conversation with like a screenwriter friend a lot recently who has the same kind of pressures to have a kid, you know, that we would have the same questions about having a family and being able to balance that because I feel that the ability to be a parent openly as a cinematographer, as a female cinematographer, is a very, very modern, very new thing. Before that, like there was a lot more stigma about being open about having a family. Like I had a classmate at AFI that had a very young kid and like she told me two weeks in and she told me, do not tell anyone that I have a kid or that I have a family because I'm really, really scared that this is going to affect how even like our classmates at school would perceive her. Mm. Um, And like when we were were at school, like I remember this was this one panel where they brought in like all these camera operators and like half of them were female, which was great. But the question was brought up, you know, it's like how uh, from one of my classmates, you know, how do you, you know, can you balance having a family, having kids? And like without hesitation, all three camera operators were like, you can't do it. Like, it's not possible. Like, you have to choose one or the other. And that's a narrative that has changed very, very recently. Like, I graduated high, uh, not high school, sorry, <laughs> um, graduated grad school in 2015, you know? And I'm just looking at this, like, the fact that we're being able to be open about having a a family or wanting a family uh, without the kind of stigma that was there before is very recent. So I think for me, at least having these conversations out in the open, whether but you I'm not to- sure if that's like what's changing. Right. Because mm-hmm. like, let's listen. Let's think about Q's response and mm-hmm. as opposed to Gendra. Right. 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 When they're talking about the same thing. They're talking mm-hmm. about like, are they far enough? In the, and I, I love Gendra's like, oh, the ball, the stone is rolling backwards. And if I let go of it right now, it's just going to mm-hmm. pull the way back to the back. Right. Yeah. Whereas Q is like, I'll get back. I'll bounce back. I'll get yeah. there. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Now, how do they like how, how is there like an objective level? You know, like that's like something that you have to answer personally. Right. Like yes. everybody has to answer like and that's what comes back to success again. Right. What level of su- success are you saying is a plateau? Right. Yeah. Like, yeah. Do we know that? Is that, you know, some things I think we don't even know in hindsight. We don't know that mm-hmm. like oh, this is a plateau for us and I'm about to shoot right up. Right. Yep. Mm hmm. We don't know that. And Mm -hmm. so I don't know. I don't know if the I don't know what I'm trying to say anymore. (laughs) I got to edit this. I think these are important conversations just because they are. It's the it's very new that we're able to have them. So, yes, there might be some bias on like how these are these topics are being brought up in this podcast in particular because of who we're interviewing it. But interviewing. But also, I do think there are a lot of people coming up in the industry who are women who have all these concerns and 
who are thinking about this choice and making it either way, right? You know, like the choice to have kids or not have kids and the way your career factors into it. So like to see, hear different decisions from different perspectives, I think is actually really, really important. Yeah. And I don't know, is it coming off hopeful? Maybe, but I like hopeful. <laughs> I'm a, Okay, maybe I'm a glass half full kind of person, but like I want to be hopeful that, you know, we can have it all. I mean, I know that's a very kind of rah-rah girl power thing to say, but like, which is not necessarily bad, but I, I think we need hope. You know, I don't think hope is a bad thing. I think also, though, like you should be honest about yourself. I I think one of the things that really struck me about Jendra is that she did some self-reflective work and was like, this is what I can do. Right. And this is what I need. And this is how I want to run my life. Right. Um, And I think that's part of the decision. That's part of the conversation you need to have with yourself, you know, being like, I want kids, maybe, but I want my career more or I want my I love my career, but I want kids more. And that's, you know, it, it is going to take a, you know, a hit by me having kids. You know, the momentum is going to slow down, as Q said. But I'm also confident that, you know, I will be able to push past that or like I don't mind losing that momentum. But again, that's a very personal conversation. I think you need to have like. Well, it's also your personality, right? Like coming mm-hmm. back to last week's episode, like there's a level where your personality has to be pragmatic, you know, mm-hmm. and Jendra's mm-hmm. character to me. Is, I, don't, I don't know her obviously very well, but like she's so driven to me. She seems yes. so driven, you yeah. know. And then, like, there's got to be a level of pragmatism, mm-hmm. right? There's, there's like, and I think that that's what it comes down to is like everyone has these different decisions because they have these levels, these different levels of like, can I take this chance? Can I, can I swing back from this? Yeah. Or can I not, you know? Yeah. And speaking of pragmatism, I think one of the other things I really liked um, that gender brought up that I hasn't, we've been kind of dancing around it a little bit (laughs) for 11 episodes, the aspect, the financial aspect, right? You know, like, I think she was very candid about that. And like, because we, I feel just the filmmaking community um, overall, but also just like the freelancing community, there's not a lot of financial tools out there for us or that are tailored to the kind of life we want to lead. And oh, especially if you are working in the like indie spaces, like, you yeah. know, the Indian world, like who, who even teaches you how to write an invoice? Right, right. Like, you know, time, like, who ta- first... like you have to have somebody just be like, okay, this is your invoice. And if you learn, God forbid, if you learn how to do an invoice from someone who was just like, nah, just put it on piece of paper <laughs> or like, yeah, you know what I mean? Like, or like, there's a lot of things that like, oh, like, um, let's say day rates, but like prep mm-hmm. rates or mm-hmm. navigating kit fees or, mm-hmm. you know, pickup days or this, like those, you know, these things that like, who teaches you how to do that? Like if you go through the union, you know, if you mm-hmm. like get up there, like there's a structure in place, there's a mm-hmm. very like organized way of like timesheets and this is how we do it, you know, yeah. but if you're freelance out there in the world and you're on a short, like, or on like a feature, even low budget feature, like what are you, you're just making stuff up. Up, you know yeah yeah i actually my favorite part of, i think of our conversation is um her advice that she would talk about like the technical route i've never heard someone put it so distinctly but mm-hmm. like the technical avenue there's always a way to learn those things there's always books mm-hmm. there's articles there's you know the ac manual there's 
um, you know, mentors, there's people, there's going to talk to people, there's testing, there's all these avenues to learn mm-hmm. the technical. But like what she's talking about is like the young DPs that come up is because they have a visual style and they do something yeah. you've seen before. You know, I, I think about that a lot. And it's mm-hmm. like, it's so funny because there are moments like when I think, oh, like everything's kind of been done before and like, you know, mm-hmm. and then every once in a while I'll watch something on a TV show and I'll be like, whoa, I haven't seen mm-hmm. that before. That's yeah. Cool. That's that's a really interesting way of covering that scene, you know, mm-hmm. but there's like so many factors that go together with all these things, you know, it's like you had to be in that space where the, like the collaboration and the trust was there, you know, yeah. like. Sometimes you're not there and like they're like someone's not ready for that. And they're like, no, mm-hmm. I, I don't I want to see it this way, you know. Mm-hmm. So it's like how can you even express yourself visually is also a matter of, you know, luck and timing and mm-hmm. all these things, you know. Yeah. But I think her actively making that choice to work on the artistic side of that is like something I think we haven't heard before on this podcast and uh, you know the importance of just being again we skirted around it (laughs) like the importance of being a complete human being with like things that still inspire like to actively look for things that still inspire us and fill our souls and fill like make us look at the world in a different way and because that's ultimately what's going to change the way we see a scene a shot a story and like make our voices unique as DPs. I think that's really important. Yeah. I mean, I think it's also really important that like we step out of the world of film and have whole lives because I think Mm -hmm. this is something we've never talked about, but I do think that burnout is something that can happen in the industry as well. You know, there's like a level of creative burnout that like, you know, you're just like, not inspired right yeah. there are moments in your life where like like writers have dry spells like i think that you mm-hmm. could like as dp is like no one's gonna admit that right no one wants to yeah. talk about like oh i'm uninspired right now right because it's like you're always looking for work and trying to better yourself and i don't know but i, I feel like that's got to be something that happens to people right like just feel burnt out with making movies yeah, yeah. No, I've had friends burn out, like straight up. Yeah. I mean, last year I was like working back to back to back to back. And then I finished a feature and then I had one short after that. And I remember my first was telling me that like I was being so jaded and cynical. I was mm. just like so like, ugh, whatever. Uh, mm-hmm. And not that like I was like giving up on the shoot, you know, like I mm-hmm. was still there. I was just yeah. getting crankier and crankier about little things. And I was like getting mm-hmm. frustrated with things, you know, and I was like, oh, like, you know, I mean, to be very honest, I was also like quitting smoking. So, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, those, mm-hmm. those like mm-hmm. other avenues in my life that were contributing yeah. to my mental state, you know? Right. Like, But like, I remember thinking, I just need a break. I just need a break. Mm -hmm. And I kept remembering to, I I was saying that to myself, I just need a break. I just Mm -hmm. want to stop, you know? And and as luck would have it, like it just stopped, you know, like Mm -hmm. other projects did stop. Mm -hmm. (laughs) It was Mm -hmm. like, I gave myself like, it wasn't (laughs) like I didn't want to turn anything down. It was like, like the universe heard, you know, I was manifesting peace or something and the universe heard and uh, here we are today. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. But um, Um, 
You know, there's a Span- I mean, there's a Spanish saying like I keep telling my friends around me and they love it. Um, the Spanish saying is like tu cuerpo te va a pasar la factura, which means like your 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 body is going to invoice you. So like, <laughs> you know, your body, not just your body, but your your brain will also start invoicing you if you like work it too hard. So like yeah. you really don't want to get to that state and like take care of yourself for sure. But like I I I remember like specifically like one moment and it wasn't it wasn't like it lasted all day or you know but it was just like a fleeting moment where I was like I'm not even having fun on this set mm-hmm. you know and yeah. it's not like you have to have like I've never felt that way like because I feel like I'm pretty grateful most of the time because I yeah. think I love what I do so much and I love being on set and I love the challenge of like fixing things or like in the fast pace of like moving on to the next scene leapfrogging mm-hmm. and being efficient and like my brain and character work really well in tandem to do all those things mm-hmm. but I just remember at one point thinking like I'm not having fun I want to go home I want to go mm-hmm. home I want to go mm-hmm. home And I felt like that was the first time where I was like, you know what? I need to take a step away and I just need, you know, I just Mm -hmm. need a break for a minute. Like, I just need to pretend that I don't do this at all, you know, Mm -hmm. like go learn how to play pickleball and like go hang out with people who don't do this and read a book and you know, not take any pictures, not look Mm -hmm. at art books, you know, because actually I sometimes think that like it's, immersing myself too much in art is actually mm. the thing that feels draining you know other people feel mm-hmm. inspired by it but mm-hmm. I feel like it's just like it's all a lot of feels in a lot of ways right like and there you're... are things there are things outside of art and feeling to like reset you you know things yeah. like yoga or things mm-hmm. like sports or food you know like yeah like other things that are not involved in like inspirationally artistic avenues. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? Like don't yeah. look at art books and be like, oh, I feel something. I don't, you know, like that's just like, no, I just like get away from everything like that, you know? Yeah. Well, I, I mean, I have that with like movies or TV shows sometimes, you know, because like when I'm deep in a project and like or deep in projects prepping or whatever, you know, like and people be like, oh, have you watched XYZ show? And I'm just like, no, I do not have the bandwidth right now. That was me like, for Euphoria. Everybody was like, did you see Euphoria? Did you watch Euphoria? Did you watch Euphoria? Yeah. And I was like, I can't. I really, mm-hmm. literally cannot watch it. I'm sure it's good. I'm sure yeah. it's beautiful. I'm sure it's exciting. I'm sure it's great TV. I just cannot put myself through that. Yeah, and like that's how I, like I do watch TV and like people are like, well, what are you watching? And I'm just like, is it cake? <laughs> you know, that's yeah, what I'm Yeah, I'm like below deck. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> I just want to watch Have you something. seen this great show? <laughs> People working on a yacht. Yeah. yeah. In the Mediterranean. Yeah. It's a yeah. really engaging show. Yeah. And that's where my brain goes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. We, we, we do need those respites. We do need these breaks. And like just having having things that we do outside of, 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 of filmmaking is, is just important. Like as Jenra said, like just traveling or just like, yeah. you know, I think you talking about like baking and bread like because i just i relate to that because like i i I bake bread i um a lot or bake a lot you know or or you with your pottery i don't know i've talked about it many times now yeah it helps and it helps ground you it helps you maybe your your mind just relax and absolutely 
you can come back. I mean, coming back fresh and coming back to, I mean, even like the small things, you know, I have a cat that like has a habit of interrupting me sometimes when I'm coloring and like, just, she'll just come and like, you know, poke her paw from behind the monitor and just like, be like, pay attention to me. And sometimes I'm just like, okay, Astra, go away. I need you. I need to focus on this. But sometimes I'm just like, oh shit, I haven't taken a break in three, three Mm -hmm. hours. You know, let me just take a break and go pet the cat and, you know, chill out. And then I can come back and be more present for what I'm doing. And like, let the creativity flow because we do need those breaks. We absolutely need those breaks. I mean, I have a three-year-old lab, you know, my Labrador Mm -hmm. will say, okay, enough. We're going outside to play. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) We have to play ball right now. (laughs) Yes. Pets, the cat has really helped me just uh, with work-life balance on a daily basis, I think a lot. No, I mean, it was a great episode and I, you know, obviously I love New Yorkers. I Mm, think that, mm There is uh, an element there that my bias is already there. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. (laughs) No, I also think it's incredibly refreshing and so honest to hear her talk about like how long and how that struggle was to get that TV show. And we actually didn't even pry very hard into Mm -hmm. the steps of how that happened, you know, Mm -hmm. but just to know that like it took her years and years and years of hard work and not giving up and just you know i think she said at one point like slamming her head against the door like let me in let me in let me in Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know yeah i think she's proof of just like you just need to stay in the game Mm -hmm. which is kind of my mantra half the time it's just like all you need to do is just stay in the game just stay in the game eventually you'll start winning the game but right now we just need to stay in the game. <laughs> so. Yeah, I think in her um, in her ASC podcast episode, mm-hmm. I think there's a quote that she she quotes. Uh, I think her AD or something, and it's if you if you keep staying in line, eventually it'll be your turn. Yep. You yep. know, like that's... don't step out of line. Don't get out yep. of the line. Yeah, you that's know? a really great way to look at it. Yeah, right. I, I was listening to that and I was like, oh, that really resonates with me. And yeah. I was like, that's, well, uh, you know, a big core tenant of what we talk about, you know? And mm-hmm. so, like, don't give up to everybody out there, you know? Just keep, keep at it. If you're listening to this podcast, obviously, you've either made it already or you're about to. <laughs> yes. Yes. We believe in you. We believe you can make it. You will make it. We Just believe stay. in ourselves. We believe in ourselves. We believe in all of our ho- guests. Yes. Yes. <laughs> We're all on our journey. Just stay in that line. Your turn will come to quote and gender. Keep our community strong, you know, yes. and help each other out and support each other. And yes. thank you guys for listening. Yes. Yes. Thank you for listening. We will see you next week or hear you next week. You will hear us next week. <laughs> you will hear us next week. <laughs> <laughs> Thank you so much for listening today. Please follow us on Instagram at the ICFC. You can also reach us by writing to ICFCpodcast at gmail.com. This episode was produced by Emilia Mendieta Cordova, Fabian Hausepian, Akina Vandevelde, Senda Bonet, and Barbie Lung. 